0: That's MyFlexLearning.com
1: forward slash B-E. If you have a choice of choosing your daughter's teacher, but only by description, and your two choices are this, you can have a teacher, your daughter could have a teacher that every day has engaging lessons, or your daughter could have a teacher that once a month comes to their basketball game. Which one you're picking? I want the teacher who's going to engage them every day. And you know what? If they engage them every day, it really means something if they come to the basketball game because the the one is paramount, the other one's just a bonus. And if they don't engage him every day, it really doesn't even matter if they come to the basketball game. Welcome back to the
2: podcast, Big Ideas in Small Windows. I am delighted to have Dr. Todd Whitaker on this episode. He has sold over one and a half million books and is most well known for his book, What Great Teachers Do Differently which offers a refreshingly digestible account of what separates the great ones from everyone else. He has a great Twitter following of 146,000 followers and growing. Jump in to listen to Dr. Whitaker in this wide-ranging interview where we cover everything from imposter syndrome to shifting the monkey back to where it belongs on the shoulders of difficult people. Welcome, my latest guest. It's such a pleasure to have Dr. Todd Whitaker here with me, and I can't wait to dive in and just ask you questions. I know your time is limited, so uh, I'm going to do the best I can to size this
1: up with you in a way that gets as much information from my audience as possible. Well, sounds good. I appreciate you having me on. You told me that it was a slow news day, so you finally got to me on the list, and I appreciate being a part of it. Exactly. So that, that works out perfectly. I appreciate it. Let me start
2: off by asking, you sold over a million and a half books. And there's not too many people that can say that. It's a half a million of which are your famous what great teachers do differently. Aside from the awesome sales numbers, if you had to pick one objective that
1: came out of your writing or, or thing you were happy about, what would it be? You know, it's really funny. The reason I write books is because there's a couple of reasons. And one of them is I'll read someone else's book and you know what my fear is? Other people are reading it, not in a competitive way. Just this is wrong. This this is incorrect. This, this is not how you do this. And I'm, it makes me very scared. And so that's the reason I write books. So people know how to do it. I, I know that sounds really weird. And if you've, if you've read any of them, that doesn't even mean they're good, but they're specific because like, for example, I was just talking to somebody uh, just talked to me a few minutes ago about dealing with difficult parents. And I said, the reason it's so specific is because I was principal of three different schools and all three schools, I had teachers that didn't know what to say when they called parents. And I don't want you to call parents if you don't know what to say. And most things are things like be professional, listen first. What is that? That doesn't help you. You know what you need to know? What do I say when they say you're picking on my kid? What do I say when they say you're being unfair? Or how do I initiate bad news with a parent? How do I share this? What do I do? And, and that gives people confidence. That's the reason I do it. I love the way you
2: phrase that because I've read almost everything that you've written and including articles and everything's so tangible. I can read it and say, oh, I can use this tomorrow or I can share this more importantly because then the word gets out and we're suddenly doing a better job of communicating with difficult parents or parents in difficult situations, as you've said many times, because that's another circumstance we should acknowledge. And I think it also helps give us some perspective. So why is it
1: that great teachers always tell me they have the best students? You're not going to believe this coincidence. It's because the students would tell you they have the best teachers. Everybody has every year their most challenging kid. Less effective people have the worst group of kids they've ever had every single year. And the great people make the best out of their circumstance. They know it's up to them. They know You know, highly effective people when they're struggling, the first place they look is in the mirror. And that isn't where you stop, but that has to be where you start because that's the beginning. You know, you're never going to change student behavior if we don't change adult behavior and the easiest adult to change is us. And so that's the great people are always focused on that. They're wondering, what did I do wrong? How could I do better? Or what did I do right? I don't mean it just in a negative way. It's really funny. I just tweeted the other day Many times people who have imposter syndrome shouldn't, and many times people who don't have imposter syndrome should. And the reason the best people doubt themselves is because they compare themselves to perfection. And you're always going to feel like you have imposter syndrome. You're always going to feel like you're not good enough if you compare yourself to perfection. And what happens is less effective people compare everyone else to perfection. They wonder, why didn't the student's parents do this? Why didn't the student do this? Why didn't the principal do this? Why didn't the superintendent do this? And the best people are going, why didn't I do this? And so that's one reason they can have, they, you know, if the students aren't good, they're wondering, what did I do different? How could I approach it? And they're always focusing on improvement, not perfection. Segues right into
2: the, what I wanted to ask you next, which is, have you ever had a teacher, because we just talked about that highly reflective teacher who's typically a successful teacher and there's no coincidence versus the opposite. But have you ever had a teacher admit to you that they were not great and then strive to achieve
1: some of the things that matter most? I don't know if I've ever had anyone that's a confessional. I'm not great, but I've had lots of people that have improved tremendously. And You know, there's a couple of different things here. I think everyone is a range of talent. You know, like on your best day, you're here. On your worst day, you're here. I also think there are people whose range is here and people whose range is here. So as leaders, we have to do two things. One, we have to hire people whose range is up here. But the other is we have to maximize every single person's range. And that's really what I want. And what I used to tell my teachers and I tell other teachers everywhere I go, I need you to do two things, but I need you to do them every day. The two things I need you to do every day are care and try. If you care and try every day, we can maximize your talent. But if you don't care and try every day, it's really tough to have you in the school. And because I feel like if you have somebody who cares and tries every day, it's so much more, it's it's easier to reach them and help them reach their potential. And that's what I need people to do, care and try every day. Teaching's hard. There is no easy in education. That's why we need vacations, need time off and all this kind of stuff, because it's not the hours, it's the intensity of the job. And it's really hard. But if I can get people who care and try every day, we can help them reach the top of their potential, whatever their potential is.
2: And the sky's the limit. I love the way you said that the teacher may not come out and admit to you, oh, you know what, you were right. I I really can see now suddenly the light has shown on me, but that they're going to quietly kind of go fix this. That's okay. We, as leaders, we don't need to be stuck on whether there is an admission or not. We just
1: need to see the improvement. You know, the best teachers don't need the worst kids to admit they're wrong. They just need them to start doing right. And, you know, great teachers want prevention, poor teachers want revenge. Revenge means I need you to admit you're wrong. We can't move forward till you bend your knee and honor me. The great teachers are windshield. The poor teachers are rearview mirror.
2: What's amazing about that is I see that the kid who feels comfortable with the teacher is going to more quickly acknowledge that they might have made a mistake because they're also going to feel safer with that teacher. And, you know, pride's not
1: going to get in the way as much. Right. Do you know what else? Pride also gets in the way, though, of even changing, not even admitting it, just changing. And so by giving them room and making them feel safe, they're more likely to change whether they admit anything or not. You know, when a kid misbehaves, the great teacher doesn't want to know why they just want it not to happen again. They don't need an apology. I mean, once in a while, it's nice because somebody hurts someone's feelings. But in general, what you're really in is you need them not to do it again. And that doesn't take the deferring like an apology does. And that doesn't mean that apology is not appropriate. I'm just saying the great teacher doesn't, I, I don't you know I don't need you to apologize to me. If I ever need a student to apologize, it's to someone in the room that they've embarrassed in front of other students. The first thing I need you to do is not do it again. And if we don't have that, the apology doesn't matter. If a, if a person apologizes and does it again, you don't want them to apologize anymore. And so I think that's an important difference there related to that, even in a personal relationship. You know, if, if I cheated on my wife, I bet she'd be a little punchy. I don't know why she's just like that. And if I apologize, that'd be great. But you know what she really wants me to do? She'd want me not to do it again. Right. If I keep is- apologizing every time I do it, you know what's the first thing she's going to say? Stop apologizing. <laughs> That's the first thing she'd say. So just kind of keep that in mind.
2: By the way, I haven't,
1: but uh, (laughs)
2: that's an important note. I appreciate uh, it.
1: Make sure that gets recorded. I will
2: make sure that parts in the (laughs) actions speak louder than the words. There's a tremendous amount of your work that's psychology oriented or based, which I love because so much of
1: what we do is organized around relationships in schools, isn't it? can you speak to that? Well, I think there's a couple things. One thing is if you want to change, if you would like people to change and, and all my books are the same thing. And I know you you're, you can verify this because you've read so more than one and I apologize for that, but they're really, how do you get people to do what it is you want them to do? That's it. The best people can get people to do anything. The worst people can't get people to do anything, but I've got to get you to do it in a way that you want to do it, that you find value in this. Isn't our
2: job all about relationships?
1: no. It isn't all about relationships. Relationships are significant. But it depends on how you define relationship too. Do you know what's really amazing about the best teachers? All of them have a learning relationship. You can have a teacher that the kids walk in and they don't ask about last night. They don't ask about their puppy. They don't do this. They just start teaching. But they teach in such an engaging way. They have a learning relationship. And so, and that doesn't mean that isn't important, but you, the relationship's still in there. You have daughters and hopefully they're more attractive. Anyhow, uh, what's- uh, uh, They uh, are, they <laughs> look
2: like their mother, thank God. Praise <laughs> of the
1: dang, praise <laughs> of the dang Lord, let's just That's leave right. it at that. Anyhow, understand this. If you have a choice of choosing your daughter's teacher, but only by description, and your two choices are this, you can have a teacher, your daughter could have a teacher that every day has engaging lessons, or your daughter could have a teacher that once a month comes to their basketball game. Which one you're picking? I want the teacher who's going to engage them every day. And you know what? If they engage them every day, it really means something if they come to the basketball game.
2: Because the, the one is kind of paramount. The other one's just a bonus. Gotcha. And,
1: and if they don't engage them every day, it really doesn't even matter if they come to the basketball game. And what happens is we've gotten into this relationships, relationships, relationships. But it really is learning relationship, learning relationship, learning relationship. And when we went virtual two years ago overnight, the biggest challenge was we didn't have a dress rehearsal. We just had opening night. But you could name three teachers you knew were going to figure it out. And you could name three teachers you knew were not going to figure it out. And the three teachers that couldn't figure out virtual haven't figured out in person either because it's the same skill set. But when you think about building relationships, that very first day when the teacher flipped on the computer, some of them checked in with the students and said, are you okay? Is everything okay? How's your family? How are people doing? Is everyone safe? Is everyone well? But some other also outstanding teachers flipped on the computer and said, okay, here's what we're gonna talk about today. And they shared something so engaging that the kids immediately were riveted exactly like they were in the other situation. But it's that, and I just don't want us to think, That it has to be someone who just focuses on relationships. I always say it's not a dinner party, it's a school year. And that's really important that you have a significant, valued relationship, which has to revolve around learning, or else it can't make it through the school year. A substitute teacher, I mean, I'm going in, I'm showing card tricks and juggling. I mean, that's what I'm doing. But at some point, the kids have seen all the card tricks, and I don't juggle all that well, anyhow. It sounds like, delivery is the key
2: that how we set the tone is significant
1: tone and manners everything isn't it you know it's really funny I just tweeted the other day and my tweets are as stupid as I am so keep that in mind I just tweeted the other day if we treat students with respect and dignity every single day we still may have nothing but if we don't treat students with respect and dignity every single day we will never have anything and that teacher that engages in learning and starts off with learning, they still treat the students with respect and dignity, or else they don't really engage the students in learning, you know, because then the kids get off track and they do something harsh or rude, and now the kid disengages. But but we have to treat people with respect and dignity every single day. Principals have to do it with teachers. Superintendents have to do it with principals. We have to do it every single day, or else there's no relationship of any type that can be healthy that could be established.
2: Absolutely. And you've mentioned a couple of times how you're tweeting. And I love that you mentioned that because that's a powerful following. If you had to pick one thing that you could say to that audience, I know you you can say anything you want right now, like in the moment. What are you thinking you'd like to share with them?
1: Well, one of the things that I like about Twitter, and you don't have to get on it, you can avoid politics if you want, you can avoid controversial topics if you want. I'm talking about especially outside of education. And if, if I wish all educators, because ed, before recent political events, educators dominated Twitter. And the benefit of, of people being on Twitter is the knowledge of one becomes the knowledge of all. And nobody steals a worse idea. And the people that are most willing to share oftentimes are the very best people because they see the world as an unlimited sum game. They're willing to share, they'll show their lessons, they'll share bulletin boards, they'll share any, anything. And I don't mean to be unsophisticated in what they share because oftentimes it's, it's, it's rich and deep. And then what happens is then I can become as good as them at least in what they shared. I don't have to think of it myself. And that allows the knowledge of one to become the knowledge of all. What I'd share with all people though, related to education now is just what they're doing is amazing. I mean, educators, it's amazing. But one thing I want to share with educators, because many times if we had standardized tests last year, I'm talking about related to pandemic and just the intermittent schedule and all the struggles we had basically everywhere. Many educators feel really sad because their test scores are lower. And I want educators to understand this. Quit being defensive. Quit it. Quit it. So what if your test scores fell? You know what that shows? You matter. See, it shows you matter. You know what would be scary? If nobody's test scores did fall, because you know what that tells you? Apparently, you don't matter. And last year, haven't we heard for years that anyone can teach?
2: Yeah, just hire anybody off the street. Right, right. right.
1: Yeah. And everybody got their crack last year, didn't they? (laughs) How'd that work out?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you, that's an amazing thing that you say, because now that there's a shortage, it is not easy to find the people that make it work every day. And it makes me appreciate them as a, as a school leader, even more.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, our jobs are hard as teachers, as bus drivers, as custodians and cooks, they're very hard, but they're also very important. And if we do it right, very satisfying. I spoke to someone
2: the other day who was on my podcast and I love the way that, you know, she said that when you have teachers in your building and they're making a difference, there becomes a scenario where I get to do this. I get to do lunch duty. I get to meet kids at lunch instead of I have to do lunch duty. Right. And I love that psychological twist because it gives us a, you know, that, that open mindset that doesn't lock us down and say, this is miserable and, and I'm already approaching it from this angle. And I know you've said this a lot in your writing. What makes it even worse is if you come at things from a negative or a, a closed mindset,
1: the kids suffer. Right. I don't know if being positive works, but I know griping and complaining doesn't. You know, Absolutely. It, it, it doesn't. And it, and it sucks the life out of everybody. It ruins the school. It, it brings everyone down. And I'm not a false positive guy. I think in the very least, I'm not. You know, the other reason I like Twitter, and this is kind of interesting because I'm fortunate for whatever reason, many people don't do background checks. So I do a lot of speaking and traveling <laughs> and I write books. But what's interesting is I don't consider other people who speak and travel and write books, my peer group. I, I hope I consider educators my peer group.
2: Well, I could tell you personally that I feel that way because you know, when I reached out to you, you said you'd be happy to connect. And there wasn't any, give me some background, tell me more about you, what kind of an audience you have. It was just, hey, you're an educator, you're an educational leader. And... About seven or eight years ago, I convinced my district to bring you in. And about halfway through, I'll never forget what you said to me. You were going and you were moving and and you were engaging and you were electrifying. And yet you turned to me and said, am I going too hard? And there's two reasons I love that. One is, I didn't think you were, I thought you could go even harder. So I said, go harder. And secondly, you don't see yourself as this hierarchical, infinite wisdom, although you have a lot of wisdom, you are saying to me, I'm, I need to gauge my audience. I need to gauge my audience. And isn't that what great teachers do every day?
1: The good ones do. You always want to know how you come across. And, and they do it in different ways. Some of them do it by asking people. Some of them do it by reading the audience. Some people do it by asking people to give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Some teachers do it by selectively calling on two kids because they know if those two kids got it, trust me, everybody in that dang classroom got it. But realize, I think one of the things that I try to do, I always try to talk to the good people because they get punished for being good. They are the key to our schools. They are the key to leading us. They're the ones that are going to do it. And so often we we accommodate negative people much more than we accommodate positive people. And it is a killer when we do that. It just, it it hurts our organization, our schools, our classrooms, our districts so bad when we do that. And that's our temptation because we think if we appease this negative person, they're gonna stop being negative. And you know what? We've never been able to do that yet. And my fear is that we we don't support the positive people, the good people, because they're the first ones that can leave anyhow, because they can do anything. You know, and, and, and we have to have that focus in our classrooms. And we, you know, it's really funny as a principal, my last school had about 1,350 kids in it. And myself and my two assistants were in classrooms every day. And they go, how are we in classrooms every day? How do we do this? And I said, well, the first thing I want you to realize is the student who gets sent to the office is the least important student in the school. So quit making them out to be the most important student in the school. And nobody will treat the student with more respect and dignity. But do you know why I'm not in a hurry to deal with that kid? Because there's not a teacher in the school in a hurry to get them back. And why do I punish 1,349 kids who are doing the right thing by not being around them? Because of the one kid doing wrong. And if your secretary is any good, they can deal with a dysfunctional student better than the worst teacher in the school can deal with a dysfunctional student. But it's that we've got to focus on the good people. and, And we just have to do it. We we I want to write a book on leading high achievers, because in my mind, that is the key to an organization's success. Because the high achievers also want you to be respectful to everyone else too. You know, they have everyone in mind. Their vision is is school-wide. So if you understand how to lead high achievers, it's kind of like you'd mentioned uh, during the middle of a session, I asked you a question. I do a lot of presenting. I was just doing a, had a full day just last week. And during the break, the like a lunch break or whatever, somebody came up to me and goes, this is great. I've loved this so far. And I said, that's not a compliment to a high achievers, that's a burden. Because when I say this has been great so far, you know what I'm saying? I reserve the right to withdraw my praise. And they're not doing it for me. They're doing it to protect themselves. And we have to understand high achievers and what that's like and how significant that is. And, you know, the other thing is you never say, have you ever seen principals or superintendents? And this is also true for banks and restaurants, because I work with leaders in in all areas have you ever seen somebody say at this you know in uh, you get started in the middle of September sends a note and said we are off to a great start keep it up yes do you know what the high achiever has a voice in their head every second saying keep it up they don't need your voice and low achievers can easily disregard your voice and all you do is put a a, a, a uncomfortable burden on that high achiever who hears you meaning the leader I don't mean you in particular here's the leader saying, keep it up. You don't need to say that. And that puts a burden on them. And it actually makes them have a distance between you because they're telling themselves, keep it up all the time. And so that's very important. And when I say, keep it up, that's really withholding praise. You're off to a good start. Keep it up because I'm going to take it back if you don't continue to do that same level. And that's just that's important. High achievers want to be great.
2: And you can give them that autonomy, can't you, to just, what do you need from me is, is really more what our leadership role is,
1: yeah, isn't it? Superstars, if you've read any of my book, Superstar Teachers, want two things, uh, autonomy and recognition. And recognition doesn't mean teacher of the year because teacher of the year doesn't even mean teacher of the year. At best, teacher of the year means teacher of the year who hasn't won teacher of the year yet. That's at best. But a recognition means acknowledgement that what they do is different, better and beyond what other people do. And it doesn't have to be at a public ceremony. It can be you writing them a note, you thanking them, you sharing what they did, you talking about how proud they are, you are there in your school. They want autonomy, which means freedom. It's funny because I'm a research guy and uh, I will have principals who will say, I had a teacher come up to me and my best teacher and want to do this. And I said, show me the research. And I said, you know, the problem with that, if they're really phenomenal, there is no research, give them autonomy and then research them, figure out what it is they did. Don't don't burden them with let them do. It's like collecting lesson plans from all your teachers. And then what happens is instead of working on effective teaching, the best teachers are working on lesson plans. Right. And I don't want to give them a test. And I'm and it's partly because we're afraid of differentiating, because in my mind, I would gladly ask my worst teacher for lesson plans if they're disorganized, because my fear is they don't have lesson plans. And I'm not talking about they don't have any up here. Right, But your best teachers have them up here. So why do I need them in a certain format or form? Because then they put their time and effort into something that isn't significant, that keeps them away from being highly effective. But we can't be afraid to differentiate as a leader, either way.
2: Yeah, and I think that that idea that have the great teachers set the tone with making something work and prove that this is something that can be phenomenal in our school is also a great modeling uh, example.
1: Right. And they work out the kinks. You know, if a great teacher go, if the best teacher in a school, any school, goes to a workshop on anything and they bring it back, they're better than the workshop. Because sure. they've already figured out how will it work in our setting, with our kids, in our environment, with our budget, with our leadership, with our, they've already personalized it. And they're better than the workshop. Because they're really elevating it not right. just transferring
2: knowledge. And that's a, that's a great way to set the tone in your school. Let's uh, look at a new teacher. I'm going to go from your 450,000 following on Twitter and boil it down to one. You meet a new teacher. They have their hand on the door. They're ready to get started for the day. And they look at you and ask one piece of advice. What should I know
1: when I'm going into this class? What might that be? Trust your gut. I think people's guts are, are right. I really do. You know, when you hire a new teacher, your goal is to have your school become more like your new teacher, not to have your new teacher become like your school. And if not, you're hiring wrong. And I always say, I don't hire new teachers to fall in line. I hire new teachers to form new lines. But trust your gut. It's interesting. If a new teacher yells, okay, not because the boa constrictor got out of the cage, I'm talking about yells, that new teacher feels funny. They didn't get an education to be that teacher. They didn't want to be like that. And if they trust their gut, I don't know what they're going to do tomorrow, but it's not going to be yell. You know, they, they haven't figured it out. They're, they're new and they're, they're doing their best, but they're never going to yell again because they felt funny doing it. They didn't want to be that teacher. They felt ugly doing it. A teacher that ignores their gut because yelling sort of worked. I mean, I, I don't mean this and it didn't help relationships, obviously, but it's sort of what the kids got quiet. I've had trouble getting them quiet. The first time I yelled, the kids get quiet. So I try yelling again because I didn't trust my gut. I felt funny, but it worked. So the next day I yell and it doesn't work quite as much. And the next day I yell and it doesn't work quite as much. And eventually I become a joke. And so trust their gut. I think your gut is right. When something feels wrong, when something feels funny, it's almost always wrong and funny. But when you lose, when you stop listening to your gut, because what happens is there's so much average, we start to think average is right. And and people that don't trust their gut start to listen to voices that are average. And, and you know, we talk about role models, but role modeling is not enough. Who's a role model in the school? Everybody. Everybody. And you know what? I don't know who's good and who isn't because I, I role model everyone. And instead, it's, it's finding the very best people, emulating the very best people, because the very best people will want that new teacher su- to succeed because they're never afraid of them. They're, they're, it's a club. It has, un- you know, that's part of the unlimited sum game. Everyone can be successful. And other people potentially could be threatened, especially if they're particularly talented good or have success at something. I was thinking about what you said about that
2: and the teacher yells and doesn't like, it doesn't feel right because they're, they went into teaching because they love working with kids. They didn't go into teaching to force kids into a military line. And I wonder, is it okay for that teacher or a teacher for that matter to go in the next day and acknowledge it? I might've made a mistake with how I handled this
1: yesterday. I think that's great. But what did the kids really want They it not to happen again? <laughs> right. They, they want it not to happen again. So there, there's no reason to acknowledge it if you're going to do it again. Right. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words again. Right. No, and there's nothing. I mean, apologizing, and of course that's a beneficial thing. I'm, I'm not pretending it isn't. But that's not nearly as important as not do it again. Follow through. Yeah. One of my favorite books
2: you wrote is Shifting the Monkey. And this was a venture for you outside of your familiar area of education. And you've written a number of books uh, outside of education. And yet I think there are so many values from it that we can bring right back into schools and for school leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and why school leaders can benefit from it?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, really, all my books, I just pretend are about education, but they're really (laughs) about life, you know, right. So somebody, I'm, I'm, my wife and I are writing a book called uh, uh, What Great Parents Do Differently. And people ask, and they, they go, could you well, let me know when it comes out? And I go, well, it's come out. It's called What Great Teachers Do Differently. I'm just going to change a few <laughs> of the stories. But it's the same It's the same principle. And I almost called What Great Teachers Do Differently. It's simple. It's just not always easy. Because if you read one of my books and it has a three-syllable word, I promise the editor put that in there. <laughs> so keep that in mind. But Shifting the Monkey is, is about... Monkeys are tasks and responsibilities and obligations, and everybody has them. Everybody has them on their back. They're very disproportionate. And I wrote the book first focusing on leaders, but that could be a teacher leading the classroom as well as a principal leading a school. And I wrote it for business. It and the book called The Ball are the first two books I wrote for business. What's interesting is that the key to a great leader isn't taking care of themselves. Your worst leaders also take care of themselves. And I want you to take care of yourself. I'm not, I'm not saying that doesn't want to make you great. You know what makes you great? You take care of the good people. Tasks are responsibilities and obligations. Every time I'm around someone great as a leader, I take a monkey off them and put it on me. Every time I'm around someone negative or ineffective as a leader, I take a monkey off me and put it on them. And here's the way to think about it. You know, if you've read any of my stuff and I talk about superstars, backbones and mediocres, I really believe if you don't understand that concept, you cannot possibly lead an organization successfully. I, I really do believe that. And you have to read, and I don't mean my definition in an ego way. I'm not a book salesman. I don't care if your school buys one book, Xerox it and sends it back. Don't tell the publishers that because they make more money than I do. I write the book so people know how to do it. That's why I write them. That's it. So I've never read a single book I've written. Books take me about a week to two weeks to write them, cover to cover. Wow. And I never read them. Partly because I don't have noun verb agreement and it's awkward to read them, but uh, I don't ever do that. Think about this superstars, backbones and mediocres. If you take a monkey off of a superstar, your best teacher, best custodian, best cook, best waitress, best doctor, best nurse, best bank, bank teller, whatever it is. If you take a monkey off a superstar, what do they replace it with? They replace it with a more important monkey. If you take off and I'm I'm not, I sometimes duties are really critical and you also want people to do duties so that people don't resent the ones who don't do, it doesn't help if people want to punch the superstar in the (laughs) kidney, you know, that doesn't help them. But if you take lunch duty off a superstar, that's a science teacher. They now put a unit in that splits the atom. Right. More creative. If you take a monkey off a backbone, what do they replace it with? An equal or less significant task. Okay. If if you take a monkey off a mediocre, what do they replace it with? Something even worse. Nothing. Zero. Or more time on Crate and Barrel website. I mean, whatever (laughs) this is there. But understand that. And what happens is we try to take monkeys off the mediocre to keep them from complaining. And they actually have more time to complain. People are in your business because they don't have near enough business. Your best teachers don't second guess people because they don't have time to second guess people. And, and that's what we have to think. We, we, and we have to, and as a leader, you have to delegate. But here's the way to think about delegating. You have to delegate anything anyone else can do because there's so many things only you can do. However, the key to delegation is to delegate the importance of the task to the importance of the person. I only delegate highly significant things to my highly significant people. And my worst people are in charge of the Christmas party every year. And, and I like the Christmas party. I'm a holiday guy. This is, you know, I've got a Santa <laughs> Claus suit. So understand that. But I can't put them in charge of the math curriculum because it's too important. Right. But I can put them in charge of the Christmas party because it's visible. Everybody knows. And if it goes bad, we still have school the next day. <laughs> and I'm using those as extreme examples, but that's the way you have to think. And, 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 and I, I, this is a, a, a tweet too. You can tell my knowledge is limited to tweets and country music <laughs> But uh, uh, is that the key, the, the problem with leadership isn't that we ask ineffective people to do important things. The problem with leadership is we ask effective people to do unimportant things. And it keeps them from doing the more important thing. And that's part of shifting the monkey. The other thing about shifting the monkey, and it's just... it's it's all about everything you do, how you do it, where you stand, where you sit, how you start, how you end, everything. But the other thing that's a, a very easy to explain concept is what I call the blanket monkey. And what that means, instead of dealing with the one person you should be dealing with, we deal with everyone. We throw it on everyone. State departments oftentimes, if New Jersey has three dysfunctional districts and eight dysfunctional schools, and I'm making up the numbers, so don't take that personal one way or the other, state departments should be dealing with three districts and eight schools. Instead, they make new regulations for all districts and all schools, mainly because they're afraid of the three and eight and they don't know what to do with the three and eight. And average, prince, average superintendents, because we've been role modeled, average superintendents then come back and blanket monkey their principals and sew so notes around that say some principals need to turn in their reports. And the most offended principals are the best principals who are, you know what they're thinking? Hey, Dillweed, there's only eight of us. You know which two it is. Why don't you deal with them instead of dealing with me? but average principals see average superintendents who see average state departments and they emulate them because they're role models. And the average principal blanket monkeys their teachers and sends notes around that says some teachers haven't turned in their grades yet because they throw a monkey on everyone instead of on the people they should. And you know who's most upset? The best teacher. Mm -hmm. And you know what they think? Oh, my land. And they go and double check and say, did I not turn my grade yet? Have you ever seen a principal have a faculty meeting and talk to all the teachers about one teacher? Yes. And they're going, sometimes some of you are coming late. Sometimes some of you. And who's most offended? The good teachers. And you know what they're thinking? What are you talking to me for? Why don't you talk to her? She's not even here yet. And because we blanket monkey, average teachers punish the whole class. Average coaches run the whole team. Uh, Schools send notes home to all the parents because one parent was late for a field trip. And you insult everybody, and you know who's most worried? The best people, because their lives are completely driven by guilt, and they're thinking that note must be sent there for me. I need to go in and apologize to the school. I mean, I was ahead of the stu- I was ahead of the buses, but there are other parents ahead of me. It was my fault. I should not have stopped and volunteered at the orphanage. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, the kids are homeless, but they're not helpless. They can get their own soup. And what happens is we let negative people hide by blanket monkeying. Because they think if you throw it on everybody, there must be a whole bunch of people besides them that you're talking to.
2: As, when you mentioned this, I went right in my memory banks to a couple of decades ago in New Jersey. Uh, some leadership teams went to Atlantic City for the annual convention, and they did some illegal activity. I'll just leave it at that. And suddenly the state jumped all over districts and made it very difficult to make purchase acquisitions so badly that we're now spending two to three times as much as, as instead of just hopping on Amazon and finding the
1: best deal. Right. So everybody gets and, punished. And if I wanted to steal money, I'm not going to do their forms anyhow. <laughs> I'm not going to do the paperwork anyhow. It's like a sign on a school that says all visitors must report to the office and they have must in all caps. And you're and thinking so that's, that's going to keep the predator and make them return, report to the office and confess. And instead, it's a gross way to greet everyone at the school. It's so threatening. It's so offensive. And the, and the negative people aren't going to follow it anyhow. And, and that's the thing that's just absolutely crazy, is your crummy people aren't going to follow it anyhow. Right. So you're, you're punishing the good
2: people who are already guilty uh, by nature. And that's why they're so highly self-reflective. And as you said, imposter syndrome earlier. And they don't need it. They just
1: need your autonomy and support. Right. I'm giving them another burden. What, why would they want to be with me? This is no good. And you know what else that is? A blanket monkey, another word for it, is also gutless. Because right, I'm letting the negative person off the hook. And it's very offensive to good people. It's a, it's offensive to average people. But average people don't know why it's offensive, so they do it themselves. Right. Great people know it's offensive. They understand it, and they don't do it themselves. But once you teach people, average people will quit doing it. They'll quit doing it. They just never thought about it. I've got to teach you exactly how to do it though. So you don't, so you have an alternative to the blanket monkey.
2: Yeah. It's like you need, you just need the average people on the right side of the fence. And if
1: we, it's, it's, isn't it our responsibility as leaders to sway that? The easiest way to sway people to be better is teach them how to be better. I, I don't even think it takes persuasion. I think it's just teaching them a better way. And all I ever do is think of classroom management. Every teacher in every school does the best they know how at classroom management because classroom management's selfish. And if any of us could get the kids to behave better, we'd get the kids to behave better. And what happens is we don't tell them to get the kids to behave better. We don't teach them how to do it. We tell them to do it. We say, get your kids to behave better. But if we taught them to get their kids to behave better, they do it because it benefits them. And that's the thing that we most, I think that's a missing piece we're doing. If you have a teacher that's a poor lecturer I don't want you to eliminate lecture, I want you to eliminate poor. And the best way to get a person who's a poor lecturer to quit lecturing is teach them a better way to teach. Because that teacher who's ineffective and relies on lecture, that's their best technique. They're not using their third, second best technique, they're using their best technique. And if you just take away lecture, what happens is they're gonna put in something even worse. But if you teach them something better, they're going to release lecture because they've got something better now. But you can't tell people to quit lecturing. You've got to teach them a more effective way that they can teach at their skill level. Let them see it, model it, role model it, however you need to do that. You teach them a better way and they'll do it. I, I always I use this with audiences. If you, have your, if you have children, how many of you, if you could get your kids to behave better, you'd get your kids to behave better? Well, everybody do it? If you're at a store with your children and I'm there and I'm a complete stranger, and you're at a store with your children, and I tell you to get your kids to behave better, how do you respond? Like this or with one finger? (laughs) Yeah, defensive. But if I taught you, if I taught you to get your kids to behave better, you'd follow me around like the Pied Piper because it makes your life easier. Mm -hmm. And that's the way, that's what we have to do with leaders. That's what teachers have to do with students is teach them something that will make them better, make them smarter, make them more interested because kids will do it. I had a track coach one time, she was terrible. Terrible teacher, terrible track coach. At track practice, she used to yell at the kids, run faster. And I'd say, you know what? I think those kids run about as fast as they know how. Because you know what? They'd like to run faster. They're not fighting running faster. And what you do, if you could teach them how to run faster, they'd do it. But if you tell them to run faster, they start to tune you out because they're already run as fast as they know how. And we do so much of that in education, where we tell people to do stuff we don't teach them.
2: And it must make them feel like they want to throw their hands in the air and say,
1: I give up. Right. And guess what they've been doing? Giving up, giving up. And I don't mean quitting in the classroom. The high achievers aren't quitting in the classroom. They're leaving the profession. That's the sad part. Cause then it's a whole generation of kids that the, the gifts they're missing. Right. I hope you
2: enjoyed this special episode with the one and only Dr. Todd Whitaker. And if you like this episode, then you definitely want to tune into my next episode, which is part two of my interview with Dr. Whitaker, where we take it to the next level, talking about everything from our kids, what pandemic learning proved, and how to deal with difficult people and so much more. We'll see you next time.